0: Sci Fi Fidelity, the podcast that brings you monthly science fiction television discussions and interviews. Remember to follow Den of Geek on Twitter and Facebook at Den of Geek US. And we are at Sci Fi Fidelity. This is episode 34 for October of 2018. My name is Mike.
1: And I'm Dave. And in this edition of Sci Fi Fidelity, we'll be talking about some of our favorite genre series that only lasted one season. And our show topics include a look at the changing direction for NBC's The Good Place in Season 3
0: and the new sci-fi offering, Manifest, also on NBC. Sort of (laughs) sci-fi. We'll talk about Manifest in a bit. But we also have an interview with Dominic Lewis, who is the composer of the music for The Man in the High Castle, which will be coming out on October 5th, almost the same time as this podcast releases And spoiler-wise, it's going to be interesting. Definitely we're going to be having some spoilers for The Good Place, but we're only going to be talking about the one-hour premiere for The Good Place. So if you're caught up on that one, you're good there. And Manifest, we're going to be talking about the first two episodes of that show. And then the interview, believe it or not, does actually have some mild teasers, I would call them, for The Man in the High Castle Season 3. So... Just be wary of that. Dominic Lewis was very forthcoming. I really enjoyed the fact that he was so detailed in his answers. So just make sure you're you're ready for that. But if you do need to skip around to avoid those spoilers or if you're only interested in certain topics, here are the time codes for today's discussions.
2: One season wonders
0: 208
2: The good place
0: 2131. Manifest. 3652.
2: The Man in the High Castle Interview.
0: 5552. But as Dave said, our discussion topic is One Season Wonders, which I was very surprised we haven't done this topic before because it's rich with discussion potential and it also garnered quite a bit of input. From our listeners on our Facebook group. So I'm excited to uh, share what we came up with. We had to sort of be choosy and pare it down to our favorites. Right, Dave?
1: All right. And this is by no means the best. In fact, I can't remember how we sold it on the Facebook group and how the discussion went there. I know there were a lot of people chiming in, but let me stop you there. How can you guys not talk about Firefly. Oh, right.
0: <laughs> Firefly goes without saying. So Right. We, we eliminated that from consideration from the very start. <laughs> right. And again, it's
1: I don't consider the three that I have the best, but they're, they're ones that I think are important, the ones that I think may be overlooked to a certain degree, and they also are, are quality shows. So I'll go ahead and start with Odyssey 5 which is a show that I really stumbled on. I found that I had Sony crackle, which is a free streaming service that Sony provides. And it doesn't have a ton of content, but as I'm looking through, I see this Odyssey five, it sort of looks sci-fi ish and it was pretty good. It's a Canadian production space. And then Showtime showed it in the U S in 2002, 19 episodes and, The only actor that everybody would know is Peter Weller, who is the captain of a six-person crew that witnesses Earth's destruction while they're in space. And through a little time-traveling anomaly with this being known as the Seeker, he sends them back in time so that they have a chance to prevent the catastrophic event.
0: That's pretty groundbreaking for 2002. I wish I had uh, tuned into this when it was airing.
1: Yeah, and like travelers only their consciousnesses are sent back and the five because one of them dies during the mission are basically attempting to change the past as they work towards saving the earth but one of the kickers is that they don't really know each other the way they did when they witnessed the earth's destruction so they've got to relive these five years leading up to the earth's destruction. And they've got to reestablish their personal, professional bonds that really, in many cases, haven't yet been formed. And of course, looming constantly in the background is the time-honored caveat of many time travel tales. Will our attempt to repair a dark future actually make things worse? And one of the interesting aspects is that one of the astronauts has a son. I forget what disease he has, but it's comes down to knowing what she knows. Can she help her son? And I'll leave it up to you to watch it and find out.
0: Yeah. And that's the beauty of these. A lot of these can be found. You said this one was on crackle and a lot of these are on Netflix or Hulu or places like that, even though they're only one season, some of them leave you a little bit hanging as we'll mention here in a minute. But yeah, that was a good one, which I was not aware of. And the one I'll have as my first discussion topic is a time travel plot line as well. And I remember when it came out and we're talking about here journeyman who, which came out in 2007 with 13 episodes. I was so excited at the announcement of the series because it was billed as a time travel show. And at the time it just wasn't something that you saw on TV. And I was right at the height of my obsession with time travel You know, reading like the company novels and some of the other ones that I have on my bookshelf. So Journeyman was a series that centered on a character named Dan Vassar, played by Kevin McKidd, who was a newspaper reporter living with his wife, Katie, and his young son, Zach, in San Francisco. And for some reason that I don't think was actually known by the end of season one, the the only season it had, he just one day begins jumping backwards in time. And he soon learns that these jumps lead to him following the life of a person whose destiny he seems meant to change. Perhaps he's going to save their life or change their life in some other way. But of course, because he can't predict when the time jump would happen, it kind of affects his family life and his job. So it did have kind of a family drama and story of the week formula, the same way that Manifest does, as we'll talk about later in the podcast. But the fact that he keeps disappearing instills some suspicion in his brother, Jack, a police detective. And then while he's in the past, Dan reconnects with his ex fiancee, Livia, who's played by a pre-Falling Skies, Moon Bloodgood. <laughs> and I remember she was great in this role in this show. He believed that she was killed in a plane crash, but it's actually that she is a fellow time traveler, which is revealed towards the end of its one and only season. So I don't know if this show was maybe the victim of a writer's strike since it did come out in 2007, but it was sort of before the strike actually happened and the episodes were already in the can. So I think poor ratings and maybe a combination of focusing on other things within Hollywood is what made this one the victim of the one season cancellation.
1: Yeah, and I don't remember what network it was on, although it does seem as if it was one of the big three. So definitely, definitely. That probably played into it as well. And, and you know, you mentioned the fact that it's explored how it impacts his family, which was a criticism
0: a lot of critics had about the show we talked about the first. Well, that's real life, guys. Yeah, it's about the relationships. It's the, you can't put the sci-fi at the center of it. And not deal with the actual characters. <laughs> so, yeah. All right.
1: Well, the second show I want to talk about is Caprica. And I don't think there are too many shows that enjoyed the huge, massive buildup after the success yeah. of Battlestar Galactica. And, and it's understandable. And it appeared on Sci-Fi Network in 2010. Like Odyssey 5, it had 19 episodes. It had... Battlestar Galactica creator, Ronald D. Moore at the helm. How could it not be a huge success? Well, as as you and I know, it it wasn't, at least with the numbers. I think critically, most people thought it was pretty good.
0: Yeah, I mean, it had some people thinking, oh, this doesn't have the space battle fun that Battlestar Galactica has, but it had its own merits.
1: Right. It's set 58 years before the destruction of the 12 colonies of Cobol. And we get to see the genesis of the Cylons through the work of Daniel Greystone, played by Eric Stoltz. And and I'm not a huge Eric Stoltz fan, but he was really good here. He really juggled that balance between good guy and madman. And I just was really impressed with him. And then we also see an organized crime boss that's a part of the big picture, and his name is Joseph Adama.
0: Yes, the father of one Captain Adama.
1: Yes, played by Isai Morales, who I, I think if you don't know the name, if you see the actor, it's like, oh, yeah, I know that guy. <laughs> yeah. Now, certainly on one level, the theme of science and scientists run amok appears here as Greystone's project emerges out of a desire to bring back, at least in some form, his dead daughter. Because He's not under any illusions. He's not creating, at least at this point, a lifelike image, like, like say we would see in, in a show like Humans.
0: Yeah, that's not the objective this early on in the evolution of the robots themselves. Right.
1: But the show Caprica looks at a world in which there seem to be few barriers and With the hindsight of Battlestar Galactica and the rearview mirror, this cautionary tale I don't think has received the support it deserves. And if you're a BSG fan, it's well worth working through the 19 episodes. And when I say working through, it's not like that's a chore because it's not. They're they're really enjoyable. It's really well done. Caprica, go watch it.
0: Yeah, it doesn't have a resolution. But since you know what's going to happen in the Battlestar Galactica years, it still serves as a nice prologue. (laughs) So yeah, that that's a good one. And then I have as a victim in 2009, the series flash forward. Now this was one that kind of got on my list and then off my list and then back on my list. I was trying to decide which ones to include. And I'll tell you why this one was included. And that is because it's so blatantly a post lost attempt to recapture the audience of Lost, which has been done since then, but this was right after Lost went off the air. Flashforward was 22 episodes in 2009. It featured Ralph Fiennes and a post-Lost Sonia Walger, who played Penny, and Dominic Monaghan, who, of course, was prominent on Lost. So you already you got two cast members. And then it also had a pre-frequency and Tomorrow People, Peyton List, who we've seen in a number of genre shows since then. So uh, Flash Forward is based on a 1999 novel by the same name by Canadian science fiction writer Robert Sawyer. And the series revolves around the lives of several people as a mysterious event causes everyone on the planet or nearly everyone on the planet to simultaneously lose consciousness for two minutes and 17 seconds on October 6th, 2009. And during the blackout, people see what appear to be visions of their lives on April 29th, 2010, a global flash forward six months into the future. So I guess a lot of people blamed bad scheduling and they had this huge hiatus right in the middle. I don't know if you remember that, Dave, it was like really tough to remember what was going on and and keep it in our heads. And it was at a really awkward moment. And then the series ended after the 22 episode season with a flash forward 20 years into the future, which was similar to the book, which I think it was a 21 year jump. And that cliffhanger finale was filmed before the cancellation was known. So that one was particularly painful. And I thought that show had a lot of potential if they could have just had a little bit more time.
1: Yeah. Oh, no question. Again, uh, every show we've been talking about, it pains me to talk about it. No, (laughs) yeah. And when we see some of the shows that get reboots, (laughs) um, guys, they're right there for the taking. Right. (laughs) All right. Now, my third and final show is one that I'm continually amazed how many people have never even heard of it. And it's the 2002-2003 show that appeared on the WB, which was the precursor to the CW, and that is Birds of Prey which aired 13 episodes in its one and only season. And from my perspective, it really sets the stage for the current crop of superhero shows like flash arrow. So the premise is that we've got Batman who is distraught over Catwoman's death at Joker's hand, and he just ups and abandons Gotham city in his stead is Oracle, who was formerly Batgirl, a.k.a. Barbara Gordon, who's also a Joker casualty, and she's played by Dina Meyer, who I just love her as Diz in Starship Troopers. I will watch her every day of the week. But she carries on the fight from a wheelchair because she was shot by Joker. And that was a point of contention by the suits at the network that – we can't have one of our main characters in a wheelchair the whole time.
0: Yeah. How could she be a superhero? (laughs) And they
1: let it go. And and we see her out of her wheelchair from time to time, you, you know, using technology. But for the most part, she runs the ops from their lair and she's a computer tech genius and all of that. Oracle is assisted by Huntress, AKA Helena Kyle played by Ashley Scott. And she is the daughter of Bruce Wayne, Batman and Catwoman, but she doesn't want anything to do with the Wayne fortune. So she is great. I mean, she's got attitude. She's certainly got the looks. She's got the fighting skills. And then lastly, after experiencing these dreams and visions in this small Midwestern town out in the middle of nowhere, Dinah Lance, who's played by Rachel Scarston of lost girl and rain fame. Well, she finally decides that she's got to follow these visions. She makes her way to Gotham City, crosses paths with Huntress, and ends up joining the crime fighting team. So we've got these three badass women taking over Batman's job and protecting Gotham City. And it is really enjoyable. I mean, if you look at it and try to compare it, say, with the production values that a show like Arrow or Flash or Supergirl enjoys... Well, you might say it comes up a little bit short, but if you were ever going to bring a series back, this would be one that I would bring back. And all three actresses are still in an age where they could do it.
0: I'm telling you. Yeah, that's true. I didn't think of it that way. But yeah, I mean, you've got teams like Charmed being rebooted. You've got Teen Titans, which is coming out. That's very similar to the Birds of Prey concept. So yeah, due for a reboot. I would agree. Now, one that stands kind of on its own, in fact, it's the only one on this list that's not from the first decade of the 2000s, and that's Earth 2, which was a one-season wonder in 1994. It lasted for 21 episodes, and I loved this show. I mean, this was at a time when there just wasn't that much sci-fi to enjoy other than Star Trek The Next Generation and shows like that. So this one was great. In fact, Earth 2 did kind of have that same feel of a, a Star Trek spinoff. But it had its own thing. I think the only reason probably it didn't really take off is that although Deborah Ferrantino, the star of the show, arguably, was great and unique and had held her own. The show also starred Antonio Sabato Jr. <laughs> and Rebecca Gayhart, who was previously known as the Noxzema girl <laughs> on advertisements. And I feel like the two of them, although they did great on their own, they kind of came in with some preconceptions about their acting ability and and things like that but unfairly so i think so the, the show basically centers around a concept wherein in the year 2192 most of the human population has fled earth to live on large orbiting space stations just because it's uninhabitable now only a small number of humans remain on the earth's surface and the show follows the journey and settlement of a small expeditionary group called the eden project which has the intent of going to an Earth like planet only known as G889 in an attempt to find a cure to an illness that they're experiencing back home called the syndrome. So basically, this show becomes a survival tale because the spaceship crash lands on the planet. You kind of get a lost in space kind of vibe because the team is separated. And eventually, during the course of the first season, two different sentient races are discovered on the planet which kind of gives it a the hundred vibe as well if you think about it so unfortunately it went from a 23 share in its premiere to a nine share during its run which is i mean if you think about it, a 9.0 share would be something that shows these days would kill for but that was enough to get it canceled even though it had nominations for emmy awards saturn awards and others so Earth 2 always will have a soft spot in my heart, even though it only lasted one season. And, you know, it was kind of a niche interest for sci-fi fans like me.
1: That's cool. You know, that's one that I guess that point in my life, I wasn't watching a whole lot of television and I
0: just totally missed it. Now, the listeners came up with a bunch of that were on our list at one time and Dave and I did discuss them, including the one that Mike Gorham came up with Alcatraz that was originally on Dave's list. And Corey mentioned the flash in 1990 that only lasted one season. Mike Cicchini, our editor in chief at Den of Geek also mentioned that one along with the adventures of Briscoe County, junior Benita brought up journeyman. She also brought up threshold wonderfalls and Terra Nova. Fred brought up space above and beyond Caprica and Carolyn and Daryl and Michael Keller all brought up almost human on our Facebook group. Daryl also brought up journeyman and Taltos mentioned the middleman limitless defying gravity as her choices. Linda chimed in with the event and flash forward. Those kind of actually are similar in some ways. And then Kevin had to mention Charlie Jade, of course, Davia chimed in with that one as well. But he also brought up Blood Ties and Kolchak the Night Stalker, which I didn't realize only had one season. So what a great list. We could have gone with just about any of these and been perfectly happy.
1: Yeah, I, I, just real quickly, you know, Linda brought up the event, which is a show that I'd forgotten about. And and I really was excited when it came out and disappointed when it disappeared Charlie Jade, as you said, no surprise, Kevin mentioned that. And, and that is a show that I really think every serious sci-fi fan should give it a shot because it is different. And and it's an Australian series, so it's got a slightly different sensibility to it. And, and the concept is, is pretty unique.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of unique ones on that list. And I'm so glad we got such a level of interest on the Facebook group for this one because it was a fun topic to uh, choose our favorite ones to discuss like you said maybe not the best ones but our favorite ones to discuss
1: all right well mike let me go ahead and start off with my show this month and that is the nbc sci-fi comedy i guess you know (laughs) I, i think the interesting thing about the good place is that it doesn't necessarily fit in any one genre niche and that's one of the things i love about it and i recommend it as you know to anybody that will listen And if you are a Good Place fan, you know, I'm going to go over the premise of the show really briefly because chances are you already know, have that down. But season three returned on September 27th with two episodes. And unlike most series these days, The Good Place is a 30 minute show and it airs Thursday nights at 830 Eastern. So let's get to the premise real quickly. Eleanor Shellstrop is welcome to her afterlife in the good place, as opposed to the bad place <laughs> yeah. by Michael, who is an immortal architect who specifically designed this afterlife community to cater to everybody's specific tastes. But it doesn't take too long before she realizes she doesn't really fit in here. And she learns that she's in the good place because of a clerical error. And that she was supposed to have been sent to the bad place.
0: And what I love about that premise, because we have talked about the good place uh, when season two started on this podcast before. And if you've watched the show, you know that that premise pretty much only sells season one. And then they just keep changing the paradigm each season. And season three is no exception.
1: Exactly. The season one finale reveals that they've actually been in the bad place all along. (laughs) Yeah. And Michael's plan was for them to torture each other for all of eternity. But instead, they become friends and eventually become better people than they were when they were alive, which completely destroys the plan (laughs) that he had. Then, season two focuses on Michael's do over with the four. And we've got a new character called the judge and she oversees Michael's do-over, which he ends up rebooting. I I think they get into the thousands because it never goes (laughs) the way he wants it to go. Only Eleanor passes the judge's test for acceptance into the good place. And now we're at season three. So before I get into the season three premiere episodes, Eleanor Shellstrop, played by Kristen Bell, who... You know from Veronica Mars, House of Lies. I don't know if you've ever seen House of Lies. I have not seen that, no. Okay, my wife and I watched the first two the other night. I uh, don't
0: think it's for us, even though she was great. <laughs> well, uh, speaking of not for us, though, I have to say my family has been going through a period of trying to discover a new show. And The Good Place has caught on hard with my 10-year-old daughter. She loves it. So we're going back through season one. And you can see a lot of this stuff foreshadowed that you mentioned. So it's been a really enjoyable rewatch cool
1: well eleanor is the quintessential party girl who should have grown out of this phase now that she's in her early 30s michael played by ted danson who everybody knows from cheers and i forgot he was a main character in csi for a while that's right and he is the immortal architect at first we think he's god but no no he's much Lower down on the uh, (laughs) totem. Uh, We've got Chidi, played by William Jackson Harper, who is an ethics professor who can't seem to make a decision about anything, whether it's what shoes to wear, what tie to wear, whether to have Diet Coke or Diet Pepsi. And and it, it just drives him crazy. Tahani, played by Jamila Jamil. And this, believe it or not, is her first acting credit. Wow.
0: Yeah, she's great. I
1: know. And she's a spoiled socialite who's jealous of her perfect sister who, you know, has cured cancer. She's a movie star, whatever. She's (laughs) perfect. Uh, Jason Mendoza, played by Manny Jacinto. And he's got a lot of credits, Mike. But my favorite is his role in The Hundred as Boy Bullied by Murphy. (laughs) I I need to find that
0: episode and watch
1: it. And he is first presented to us as the silent Buddhist monk named Jianyu, but then we learned that that was all a cover because he realized something was up. And uh, He
0: also doesn't belong there, but none of them do, he honestly.
1: None of them do. And, and and the great thing about him is he, he's got a fixation and fascination with the Jacksonville Jaguars and Blake Bortles in particular. And if you're a football fan, it, it's just You know, it just adds to it. And then, of course, there is Janet, the AI caretaker, and Michael's right hand, played by Darcy Carden, who you may know from a series called Barry. So in season three, Michael goes to Earth to undo the deaths of the four, aware that it's going to start a new timeline with ripple effects. And, you know, of course, you and me, I mean, (laughs) we love love time travel or we love, you know. And once back, he and Janet observe as the four hopefully become better people. And essentially, his experiment continues just in a different form. So, Well,
0: the thing that really interests me about this is the fact that the whole failure of season two is based on the fact that because they are together, they can't punish each other. the, The bad place doesn't work because they make each other better people. Exactly. So this season three experiment is basically meant to prove that if we put them back in their regular lives, will they still be the better people they became when we had them in the bad place?
1: Right. So for Michael, the early returns are not good. So against orders from the judge, he goes back to nudge first, Eleanor and Cheedy together since together, as, as we've said, they all become good people. Now she has to go to Australia so that she can ask Chidi to be her moral guide. And and just that conversation is worth the 30 (laughs) minutes it takes to watch the episode, because if you've gone through the first two seasons and you know what Eleanor's like, it it really is, really is funny. But as she tells him, she wants him to help her become a better person. Now Chidi, who still has difficulty making decisions, goes to consult with a neurosurgeon who gives him an MRI and tells him that essentially he's okay and that, that his inability to make decisions is not neurologically related. And he's suddenly able to be more decisive until a friend takes his advice and gets injured after deciding to get into better shape. So, you know, this one event, the MRI almost cures him of his problem and then when he offers advice to somebody else and they have a negative impact, then he's back to his old way. So, it, again, it, it's really funny. And, of course, there's a little bit of a love interest going on with Cheedy and the neurosurgeon.
0: And I like where that's going. I like where that's
1: going. I, I do, too. And, and, and of course, there's always been the fact that Eleanor and Cheedy were paired in season one as soulmates. And while there was not really a whole lot of sparkage between the two you know if one would see the other with somebody else there was always uh, you know a little bit of jealousy maybe
0: well the the girl playing Simone is in a show called Killing Eve on BBC America great character in that so I was very excited to see her in this one but yeah you can always mix up the formula and I think that certainly having Cheedy see it in a different light and they make attempts to change their ways is very fun, especially since Michael has to sort of break the rules in order to make it happen. So it's not really a true test
1: (laughs) or all right. And he's constantly breaking the rules. And in fact, the one demon, and I can't remember his name, but uh, he's been in the previous seasons. He suspects something is up, but he can't get into the judge's computer system. So he doesn't really know what's going on with the four who've been back on earth for a year now. And, eleanor nudges chidi and you mentioned simone together since chidi's afraid to ask simone out and again that that's a great scene and it's certainly reminiscent of the relationship that chidi and eleanor have in the first two seasons it's just that there wasn't a third party that Cheaty could get together with well the demon finally gets access to the judge's computer, knows Michael's been going to Earth multiple times, and Michael's got his little passport that he has to get <laughs> stamped by the gatekeeper who is fascinated with frogs.
0: So um, <laughs> yeah. that works to Michael's advantage, yeah. <laughs> exactly.
1: So, oh, yeah, oh no, the judge didn't say there was a time limit and tch, stamps it again. <laughs> so, Cheaty is still working with Eleanor. And he recognizes that what they have in common is that they each nearly died. Well, of course, we know that, right? That's the dramatic irony here in this situation. So it spurs him to create a new doctoral thesis, the impact of near-death experiences on ethical decision-making.
0: Perfect. Perfect for Michael so he can (laughs) get them to uh, travel to Australia to join the study.
1: Right. So we've got Chidi and Eleanor together. Michael's next step is to get Tahani involved. And I believe we've seen the scene before how Tahani dies, which uh, she's at some sort of an auction and she wants this big statue and it eventually topples on her and kills her. Well, it's going to happen again. But Michael pushes her out of the way. And, of course, the crowd credits her sister for saving her which is again hilarious but she has an epiphany gives away all her worldly possessions i'm a woman of the people now she says and moves how perfect is this to a tibetan
0: monastery wearing the same clothing that her soulmate john you <laughs> wore in the initial episodes of season one is that what you mean ironic <laughs> yes yes well what's i think key here is that each of the characters goes through this kind of epiphany. Eleanor tries to be a better person. She does it for a while and then finds that it's just too much trouble. And that's when she hookups with Chidi and Chidi does his reformation for a little while and fails. Here's Eleanor trying it for a little while. And even Jason does it later on. So they all have to fail initially by themselves so that they can succeed together.
1: Right. And one of the things I guess we have to consider is were these people good all along and can they be, and I'm making air quotes, bad and still be good? <laughs> yeah. Because she's at this Tibetan monastery. She's really making an effort, but there's a camera crew that stumbles across her, recognizes her, and next thing we see, she apparently uses this experience to write a book and returns to the spotlight. And I guess holds all of these uh, I don't know what do you call them um, self-help sessions and she's a motivational speaker and
0: uh, right the spotlight was too seductive she had been competing with her sister for so long when she finally got what she wanted she couldn't resist right so at
1: one of her events Michael shows up and challenges her ethics Cheaty calls her assistant at precisely the right time yeah. and she agrees to join the study and we're like eh, okay you know it's Within the parameters of the show, we're cool. And we've got the scene in which she recounts how it happened to Cheaty and Eleanor. Michael's pulling all the strings and putting these four together, and we and we see where this is headed, and we know, okay, so obviously Jason's gotta be
0: next. Which and that's the thing too, is that you're willing to give the show a pass when it stretches credibility like this because there's an element of destiny to it, you feel like.
1: Oh, absolutely, yes. Now, Michael goes to Jason, and if we recall, he died (laughs) suffocating inside a safe with some cockamamie plan. I I can't remember what they were even trying to rob. Yeah, they were sneaking it into a Mexican restaurant so that he
0: could rob the place.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But Michael goes, releases him from the safe in which he, as I said, ordinarily would die. And that's when he decides he needs to change his life because he's been given a second chance. So he decides to work towards winning a dance competition. And, <laughs> as one does. And, right. And of course, we know Jason as a DJ in his, his previous life. So, you know, a dance competition doesn't seem out of the realm of possibility for what we've known about him. But his crew realizes that he wants to give up crime as well. But when they realize that, most of them just walk away, leaving the dance group short a few people they keep losing competitions they return to crime get arrested he realizes he's a failure and again another epiphany for jason he starts considering what his legacy would be and he says i have no truly great accomplishments and coming from jason that's out of left field and and you know this this is not the jason that we've known through the first two seasons so He thinks there might be more to life than what he has realized to this point. Michael sends him to meet Chidi's group, and that's when the judge, played by Maya Rudolph, comes in to talk to Michael and Janet. And they almost get caught, but all four are now in Australia. And unbeknownst to Michael, at the very end, a fifth person shows up,
0: Trevor. (laughs) Played by, I can't remember the actor's name, the guy from Parks and Rec. And he plays the head of one of the neighborhoods of the bad place. And I had almost forgotten who he was when I saw, him, but I'm like, oh, yeah, <laughs> forgot about this guy. So you're not going to like him when you see episode three. Yeah. Well, thank goodness for Michael that uh, Maya Rudolph was binging NCIS. That's all I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's it's a good thing. She's got eternity to watch because <laughs> there are a lot of episodes. That's right. Yeah, such a great show. And the fact that it reinvents itself each season is a selling point in and of itself. That's why it's interesting that with our next topic, which is Manifest on NBC, we talk about these one season wonders. And unfortunately, I do see some of the same hallmarks in Manifest that we saw. And I think we compared it in our discussion last podcast when we were talking about
2: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
0: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The shows we were looking forward to, that manifest kind of feels like the 4400 in a way. But it also kind of feels like a show that we talked about that got canceled after one season on this podcast. And that's The Crossing because of the fact that the government is trying to figure out what to do with all these people. So I hope this show does well. It's currently airing on Monday nights at 10 and I've been reviewing it for Den of Geek. So we'll see what happens. It premiered on September 24th and there have been two episodes so far that we're going to talk about tonight. So have you, you've been enjoying this show too, Dave, what do you, what have you thought of it so far?
1: Well, I was pleasantly surprised like you. Once I heard about it, once I read the premise, my first reaction was there's no way this show is going to survive past season one and for all the things you just said I I still believe that's probably true if I was going to Vegas to bet on it mm-hmm. I would bet against a season two but
0: that said I thought episode one was pretty strong and it did pretty good in the ratings for NBC so the premise of this show in case you haven't heard the full description because we talked about it in brief in the last episode of, of sci-fi Fidelity but Basically, there's a family, the Stones, who are returning from vacation in Montego Bay in April of 2013. And we've got Michaela narrating. She's, what, a 20-something, 30-something young woman? And she's played by Melissa Roxburgh, who, I'll tell you... I loved her right from the start because I remembered her as the skydiver in that Travelers episode, 17 Minutes. <laughs> oh, God. I can't
1: believe that. You know, it's like, yes, I loved her immediately as well. What do I know her from? And I
0: don't know why I didn't look it up. That's where. Worth... Okay. Yep. Thanks. That immediately was like, I already love her because that's one of my favorite Travelers episodes. Uh, her brother, Ben, is played by Josh Dallas, who's Prince Charming in Once Upon a Time. He actually is the other main character, you might say. And then his wife, Grace, is there returning from vacation. They're bickering twins, Olive and Cal. Cal has leukemia. So he's only got, I think, in the context of the show, only maybe a year to live or so. And then Michaela's parents, Steve and Karen, are there as well. So they want her to marry Jared. That's what they're discussing in the airport at the beginning of the series. And there's some mention that guilt is somehow coming into play for Michaela. That's preventing her from committing to Jared. And there's some healing that's going on now. I think from the very start, that's another reason why Michaela is the strongest character because she immediately has a lot of depth and emotional turmoil to endear us to her and make us care about her more so than some of the other characters. But on the way to New York, some standby vouchers are offered. They don't have enough room on the plane. And so Ben Cal and Michaela stay behind to wait for the next flight, which is the fateful Flight 828, which experiences turbulence on approach to New York. Air traffic control does not recognize the call sign. They are diverted to a small airport with all kinds of electrical storms going on. Suddenly it calms down. They land, no problem. But suddenly they have no signal on their phones because, as they find out when they get out of the plane, the FBI is there. Explaining that it's now November 4th, 2018, five years have passed and, you know, they're quickly reunited with their families. And initially they're all just happy to see each other, but the biggest impact comes when Olive, who is the other child that's, that went home on the earlier flight is now five years older. So she quickly aged from age 10 to 15 and her twin brother is there still age 10 and that's what finally freaks out cal and, and brings it home for us as well not to mention grandma karen has passed away
1: right and you know you mentioned cal having leukemia and like odyssey five the one of the astronauts has a child that has some sort of a disease immediately that becomes an issue in this first episode that uh, well okay so you know now what And and of course that does come up in the episode later but the other thing with Michaela once we find out what it is that she had done for a job before uh, that caught me
0: off guard a little bit right and well it comes into play whenever you're dealing with crimes of the week or anything it's helpful to have a cop in the cast somewhere but yeah her you mean her personality didn't seem to fit with that is that what you're saying
1: yes and of course we get a cop that's willing to break the rules so you got to like that
0: yep Always helpful <laughs> for narrative reasons. But there are basically three plots in this first couple of episodes and probably will carry through the first season at least, and that is the unexplained powers and sense of destiny that comes about from their experience of having jumped forward five years. There seems to be a higher power at play. And the passengers on board Flight eight two eight start to get these premonition glimpses, whether through uh hearing voices, seeing visions, hearing music uh, has a bunch of different manifestations. So that's one plot. Then there's a small plot line with the government conspiracy that seems to be starting to come into play, but at least the government is concerned with what this all means. But really at its core, this show is about the family drama. And I think that Josh Dallas said in an interview and we mentioned this in our in our Den of Geek podcast that it's really a uh, attempt to combine a sci-fi drama with a this is us type of formula. And I think in that sense, they do pretty well. The family drama is very strong. It is very compelling. And I got to give him credit for that. One of the pieces that comes into play right from the very start in episode one is the fact that Michaela was going to marry Jared, who is a coworker at the NYPD, but Jared moved on in those five years. In fact, he married her best friend, Lourdes, who I'm sure was a great shoulder to cry on. And Michaela already had doubts due to that guilt about something to do with a car accident with a friend named Evie. That's still a little bit mysterious at this point in the season. Something to do with her being exonerated from drunk driving charges, but some kind of thing happened that we haven't discovered yet. But Michaela is on self-imposed desk duty at the start of this episode and having to deal with working with her ex-fiancee in a very awkward manner.
1: Well, you know, you mentioned that Again, at its core is a family drama, and essentially it's a hybrid show. And the challenge is going to be to get people like my wife to watch this because she's not opposed to sci-fi, but it's got to have a story. And she's trying to get through Travelers, and I just need her to get to where Grant really starts having difficulties with the relationship. With his wife, you know, because then it really starts to be about the people rather than the time travel. And
0: in fact, I think the married couple in this one that's still married is the one that's the strongest. And that's Grace and Ben, who are happily reunited. But at the end of the pilot, it's revealed that Grace has been seeing someone else similar to what happened with Jared. But she's not ready to tell Ben. She wants to kind of preserve their marriage. But the older daughter, Olive, urges her to say something. She she owes him that. Thankfully, I'm happy to report that secret does not last past episode two. And I'm so glad they didn't hold on to that too long. Ben can see that she's distant. She actually covers up in her robe at one point in episode two. It's like, I'm your husband. (laughs) You don't have to cover up. And she also has marks on her shoulder from some scuba diving. She's been doing, which the two of them always meant to do. So when Ben sees two sets of scuba gear in the family storage unit, he puts two and two together, but he doesn't blow up. He doesn't get angry. He just urges her to please remember how much he loves her, how much they loved each other. And they do resume intimacy by the end of episode two. And I thought that was really good. There's still some drama in store, no doubt, especially since we don't even know who the other man is. We've only seen him in texts. But this is by far my favorite plot, especially the way they have Grace go through the dilemma of the fact that she loves both of them. You know, it's not something where she wants to choose between the two man, men that she loves. So I thought that was really well done. And, you know, the family drama of of the stones even extends as far as the kids, because Olive was in therapy because of her brother and father disappearing. Ben is making a really great attempt to reforge his relationship with her. She even is trying to fix the awkwardness between her and Cal, who suddenly has an older sister to deal with. She kept all of his stuff. And there's this whole deal with Cal feeling uncomfortable in his new clothes that they've gotten him. Doesn't really like his new toys. He wants his old toys and she kept all of that stuff. Somehow knew that he wasn't gone. Must be a twin thing, I guess. But the other big part for the family drama aspect of it is that there's a religion piece to this. There seems to be some references to God, as soon as they get home, they see a pillow that the dead mother stitched that has a verse from the Bible, Romans eight twenty eight, which has that same number from the flight. All things work together for good, which kind of gives a sense of fate, destiny, dealing with what has happened to them. And in fact, it, there's an ongoing conflict between Michaela and Ben about the nature of their premonitions because Michaela thinks that God might be involved and Ben thinks it's the scientific explanation for all this. So definitely enjoying seeing that unfold from a thematic perspective, but the sci-fi fans in us must really wonder about the mysterious powers, except for me. The reason it's not as compelling is because they're using the mysterious premonitions as a way to introduce a story of the week, which is not my favorite. I did like the fact that Michaela introduces these powers by being on a bus and telling the bus driver to slow down and when he finally complies they realize he was about to hit a kid that was running out into the street so we immediately figure out that something's going on but it's almost a compulsion with these guys where she and ben start to exhibit a compulsion to at first free these dogs in a junkyard and they can't figure out why they don't know why but it sort of draws them into what's going on with us. And should we tell anyone about it?
1: Right. And it ties in so well with her ex boyfriend, who's leading the investigation into these missing young girls. And, you know, as you said, the thing with the dogs, well, they had it right, but just, (laughs) they didn't
0: go far enough down the road. Right. Now, did you feel like that was a little contrived that they, because I could sort of see it coming from a mile away when they kept mentioning the abduction case, that something was going to happen.
1: You know, to be honest, I really didn't. And, uh, you know, I guess in retrospect, I probably should have. But, you know, you, you mentioned the case of the week. And again, as you know, I'm not a fan of case of the week either. And the fact that we've got the government conspiracy or at least the government involvement, you know, hovering overhead. If the case of the week is what leads the government to continue its involvement then i'll probably be okay with that yeah
0: and we'll see if that's true and and we'll get to the government conspiracy plot in our final part of this discussion but but yeah there are some elements that actually work in its favor because of what else would they do in this situation but i guess i just didn't like the second episode's case of the week which was ben hearing some music that guided him to one of the other flight 828 passengers whose son was falsely accused of robbery and it just seemed like, you know, it took a back seat to the family drama, which was much more interesting between grace and Ben. And it kind of just played out almost like because they had to fit it in there somewhere. <laughs> I mean, I liked the fact that the passenger who was from Jamaica, I think he couldn't get in to see his son and his son had done all the right things and was just falsely accused that was okay. It kind of felt contrived that Ben was involved since he's not the cop. He only used Michaela's connections to help out. And it just so happened that when they went to retrieve Cal's things from the storage unit that Olive had stashed away all of his toys in, it just happened to be right near the place where they could prove that the shop owner's son had stolen all of the goods, not the passenger's son as, as we saw in episode. So I just felt like, That didn't really hold together for me in terms of making sense. I mean, because you can have destiny, you can have unexplained premonitions, but you can't have contrivances that have nothing to do with their powers because he was only in that storage unit because of Olive, not because of his powers.
1: Right. And hovering overhead is where the powers come from.
0: Right. Well, especially since it seems to affect people in different ways for Ben, it seemed to be music. Whereas Michaela was hearing voices And something is going on with Cal, who is the third stone passenger on flight 828, and he's not talking. All we know is he's drawing something. First of all, of course, you've got to mention the fact that he had leukemia, and five years later, there's a treatment for his leukemia that was developed by another passenger named Sanvi on flight 828. She's a researcher who gets back to find that her cellular regeneration theory is now a reality five years later. And it has cured many pediatric cancer patients and Cal just doesn't qualify for it because his diagnosis date is outside the parameters. Well, no kidding because five years ago he was supposed to die. So it's kind of just like a technicality, but Sanvi brings him in anyway because she feels like she's being called to help Cal. And I get the impression that Sanvi is going to be an ongoing plot line that will be, sort of tangential to the stone plots
1: right now the thing that drove me crazy about that scene is you certainly understand sanvi feeling obligated to help this young boy her mentor oh it's going to ruin the study uh it isn't an easy solution just don't include him in the study <laughs> let me just treat well, him separately
0: can't we do that there's some ethics involved there but yeah i, I see what you're saying
1: Well, I I mean, I guess I would say yes and no. And again, I'm no medical scholar, but I I can't believe you couldn't get the family to sign whatever waivers would be necessary.
0: You're not. I don't know. Maybe I don't know what I'm talking. Well, maybe that's what they did, because clearly Cal is participating (laughs) with her study. But the cool thing about Cal is that he doesn't speak, but he is drawing pictures. So his compulsion seems to be something to do with that because he's drawn a picture of his family with a shadowy figure in the background of the picture. And I just love how Ben goes, Oh, who's that? I don't know. (laughs) It's like Cal doesn't seem to care about what he's drawn. Ben doesn't seem to care about what he's drawn yet. The drawing is super creepy.
1: Well, hopefully he won't draw a picture of the earth
0: exploding. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, agents of (laughs) shield. Yes. But anyway, uh, the government conspiracy comes in because of that, in my view, because of the fact that they've edited together, at least in episode two, the drawings of Cal's shadowy figure, with a shadowy figure who is going after the one passenger who did not agree to the media blackout that the government mandated, with regard to Flight Eight Two Eight, and I think they're trying to create a sense of false equivalence. Like Cal's shadowy figure in his drawing is the shadowy figure that killed that passenger that that spoke out, but I think that it's someone from the government or someone part of a conspiracy that dispatched this passenger who spoke to the media because they didn't want it to come out. Not some supernatural reason. I could be wrong, but what I liked about the government conspiracy is that they were just trying to investigate Ben. Certainly in episode one correctly surmises that the government is not done with them, but it's not until a bunch of the passengers are called to the airport compelled by these premonitions specifically to watch the plane blow up. And the explanation given is that, this force that has given them these powers that caused them to jump forward five years doesn't want this plane investigated. And so it spontaneously blew up. Well, of course, the government is then going to worry about why these 20 people showed up at the airstrip right when the plane blew up and they're going to start worrying about national security. So even though the government's conspiracy plot line seems to be a bit of a trope, I give it a pass. Because what else could they do? <laughs> what else? Could, how else could they react in that situation?
1: Right. Oh, no, no question. I agree with you.
0: So definitely the plot line that I think is going to come out with that government conspiracy has to do with the shadowy figure who killed one of the passengers. We're still early in the show, of course, so it could go any direction. I'm on board mainly from the fact that I'm reviewing the show, so I have to be. But I always give shows three episodes. So we'll see what the third episode brings, whether I feel like it has staying power. I'm cautiously optimistic on this one, but it does have its flaws. I won't I won't lie. Both of my reviews for episodes one and two were three and a half stars out of five, which is my uh, equivalent of like a C grade. So we'll see.
1: Is it slated for 13 episodes?
0: Yes, 13 episodes. Mm hmm. So uh, hopefully some of our listeners out there are enjoying that one. But one we also have talked about on this podcast is the man in the high castle, which I'm very excited is coming back for season three on Amazon. I happen to be moderating a panel at New York comic-con this weekend with some of the stars from that show. Very excited to be doing my first panel moderation at a big convention. And I'm also reviewing man in the high castle for den of geek in season three. So I'm fully invested, and I was so happy that we were able to get the composer for this show, Dominic Lewis. And, you know, we talk to a lot of composers on this podcast, but Dominic Lewis is a great interviewee because he's not only into the music, he's also into the show. So he's going to give us some nice tidbits here. But Dominic Lewis has been in the music department of several feature films, including X-Men, Sherlock Holmes and Wreck-It Ralph. And he was even a featured vocalist, believe it or not, in movies like Captain America, Winter Soldier, and The Amazing Spider-Man 2. But The Man in the High Castle is his first American main composer gig that I could see, and he is killing it. The Man in the High Castle Season 3 drops its 10 episodes on October 5th, and Dominic has a lot of enthusiasm for some of the new storylines. So let's take a listen to what he had to say. Hi, Dominic. Hello. Hello. Thanks so much for uh, joining us to talk about Man in the High Castle. I'm very excited for next week's premiere.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. It's going to be... It's a really great season. I, think I hope people are going to like it.
0: It must be kind of strange because a lot of the composers we talk to talk about how they're working on the score all the way up until right before the episode airs, but there's been quite a bit of time since production. Have you been able to sort of watch it mature or get it perfect?
2: <laughs> um. Well, I mean... The thing is, I've, I was working on it up until, until I finished High Castle, only a couple of months ago. So it's been the normal length of time, season three. It's just it, it started later than there's been a massive gap in between two and three. But I, yeah, I haven't <laughs> actually, it's been sort of the normal schedule before it gets released. So.
0: Ah, uh, bummer. <laughs> well, uh, I want to start off with talking about some of the settings of this show in terms of your themes? Because the show has, of course, three different areas of focus. You've got the German-occupied Greater Nazi Reich in the East. Mm-hmm. You've got the Japanese-occupied Pacific States in the West, and then the neutral zone around the Rockies. So how did you design a palette for what amounts to different cultures?
2: Yeah, it was it was kind of more about creating the world of High Castle as opposed to really focusing on what we perceive to be the music and the feel of those cultures in our world. Obviously, I took influences from our reality and in a kind of broad sense, the Pacific states early on in season one were represented or or, or there were flavors of of woodwinds and um, more string instruments, classical orchestral string instruments, i.e. the cello. And then for the for the East Coast with the Germans, you know, without sounding too cliche, I mean, there tended to be more brass instruments to represent the power of the Nazi regime. But at the same time, you know, not overtly. For example, Smith in the first season, I didn't really score him. It was more he was more sort of a sound design and a feeling as opposed to an actual theme. Until we move further into the season, where we get his theme on a piano, which was sort of, it sort of evolved as his theme and started out more as Thomas's theme. And it sort of evolved into being Smith and that side of Smith, his more vulnerable side. And it also could take on a more, a powerful version of it by using brass. So, and then in the neutral zone tended to be kind of earthier, more folky inspiration, you know, I I have a, a hundred year old banjolin that my father in law gave to me, which I used quite a lot, especially when the marshal comes into town in season one. Some Guitari. I have a cigar box dobro that I used. Um, you know, I get feedback. I've got a pickup in it, which I get some feedback, which has got some cool noises. So, yeah, it was more sort of getting inspiration from those cultures and those musical worlds, but not overtly slamming them. Over people's heads, you know what I mean. So it didn't become cliche and a bit cheesy. So and and then as you move into season two and three, it, everything is sort of moving around. So that you're not really sure who's on whose side and who's doing what and where they are and what's happening. So everything kind of cross pollinates as we move into two and three. How that makes sense? <laughs> yeah, totally.
0: Yeah. Well, it's all about understatedness a lot of times, anyway, for for spoilers. Mm-hmm. But I'm really excited that season three. We'll go further into the idea of parallel worlds. And I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to sort of speculate that Juliana's sister, Trudy, who was sort of back from the dead in the season two finale, might just be from another reality. So, did her status as a traveler factor into the kind of ethereal wind chime like effect that you put into your Trudy suite this season?
2: Yeah, exactly. That exactly was the inspiration for that. I mean, it was funny. Watching that scene for the first time, uh, I think it starts out, there's a scene when we first see Trudy kind of walking around the farm where they are. And it's the, the scene starts out with a wind chime. And it, and it conjured up memories of me as a teenager, our next door neighbors. You know when you're sort of half asleep and you hear wind chimes, and not the annoying ones, because there are really annoying ones. <laughs> you just want to yeah. like go next door and rip them down. But no, not the annoying ones, the kind of peaceful sort of lulling sleep thing and you don't really know whether you're awake or asleep and what's going on and it's very dreamy but it's kind of a weird eerie dream feeling Mm -hmm. and I wanted to recreate that with the Trudy suite and essentially that's that was the the basis of where I was going to take the travel so that suite was was the first thing I wrote in in season three to really kind of give me a roadmap of what I was going to do with the travel because in this season it is a mixture of like weird meditative dreamy travel. And then on the flip side, you've got how the Germans are going to use it, which is really messed up and crazy. So it had to have a little bit of power and the power comes from the harmony as opposed to the instrumentation, if that makes sense.
0: Oh yeah, totally. I I love that. That was uh, where you were headed there with that, but um, John and Helen Smith will be rising within the ranks in season three based on John's actions To bring down the conspiracy in season two so what changes have you implemented for the smith family given their story arc which might be a little darker might be a little bit more majestic i'm not i'm not sure what i would predict
2: their story arc is super cool and it's sort of all of those things you said yeah it's it's really hard to explain this without giving anything (laughs) away but um John Smith goes through, I mean, they both, as a as a couple, go through a lot um, with the loss of their son, as uh, where, we, where we start season three, obviously, with Thomas turning himself in in the end of season two. There's a lot of domestic marital problems when we move into the beginning of season three, which creates this tension. And it's been really fun to score their relationship because in season two, you know, they were each other's rock. You know, with all the problems that they were going through, with everything that Smith was going through, and the pro- and and the and the problem that his his son's disease was causing, that friction. But they could always look to each other. And then in season three, it's not quite simple. I mean, they still they're still very much a team, but there's a lot of stuff that's been swept under the carpet, obviously because of who Smith is now and how he's rising through the ranks. A lot of it is obviously being suppressed and and there's a lot of resentment, a lot of tension between the two of them and that is important to portray in the music and it was really fun to come up with a version of their theme a version of his theme that created this Kind of eerie tension, and when, when in seasons one and two they 've always been so strong and they 've always relied on each other, and not not the case in season three, to the point where Smith is really going through it in the, as, as we move through the season, and then there 's this little frantic piano thing that I wrote that I, that I wanted to describe, but how you know he, not knowing what the answer was, like he at a point in season three it 's not giving too much away, he doesn 't know where um helen and the, and the girls are. And he goes out to the beach house, and they're not there. And he's like, he's he's really, really in a, in a place of worry, and what does this mean? And then he has to go back to this big rally back in New York. Um, I'm trying not to give stuff away, so um, uh, forgive me. If,
0: <laughs> I think you're doing a good job.
2: <laughs> yeah. So I this little piano figure that keeps coming back, which is kind of frantic and a little bit skittish, helps to conjure up hit, hit the problems that. It's just getting worse and worse and worse. And it's, a, it's a, a repetitive figure, so it helps portray that. It's odd because Smith, with Smith's doubts and what Smith's come from um, from season two, it's almost like he end, kind of ends the season, you kind of root for him, which is really mm-hmm. odd because he's such a horrible man when you really let like, step back from it. <laughs> But it's been really interesting scoring his journey because by the end of season three you're sort of rooting for him and you sort of feel for him. So Smith's theme takes on many different ideas in this season. It's not just uh you know, as I say, season one we didn't really score him, he was more evil and, and more sound designy. and then when we see the more human side of him, the piano theme comes in and sometimes on the horn when it's a bit more aggressive. But this isn't it's not quite so simple here. It's um yeah, it's, it's really difficult not giving stuff away, but um, I'm hope, I hope I'm explaining it well enough for people to get what I was trying to do. Of course.
0: Yeah. Now, that, speaking of that, though, there's probably been a lot of storylines over the seasons that kind of stood out for you. But musically, was there anything that you really enjoyed writing for where the point where you would sit down at your desk to start writing for that particular episode? And you thought to yourself, oh, good, I get to bring back this particular theme or play with that particular melody any favorites in there
2: yeah i really love Tagomi's theme. you know because it means i get to get my cello out more often than not <laughs> and you know i don't play it that much these days but when i do you know i obviously have a computer to time and tune me and make me sound nice but it's always enjoyable to to play those themes that uh, um on the cello which i think probably is why the score is quite celloistic if that's even a word um <laughs> It is now. As a whole, you know, the the cello is a very prominent um, instrument in in the whole score. And I think it's, one, because I play it, obviously, but two, it's a hugely versatile instrument. It can give you sadness, it can give you joy, it can give you aggression, and it can give you peace. It can go low, and it can go very high. So it's extremely versatile, and I think you need that with the the arcs of these characters, which is why, you know, Juliana, who's extremely complex and you know, what she's come from and what, to what she is now the cello was perfect for her because she starts out as this fragile, you know, doesn't really know what's going on so her melody's wistful and sort of pleasant and quite fragile to, to you know, when we meet her in season two, she's got more of a purpose and then, you know, you've got the chugging cello things. There's a track on the season two soundtrack called Juliana's Giulia, Letter where we first really hear her sort of I guess it's a really an action, her in action motif. And I take that further in season three. So I haven't really answered your question. But I mean, my point being that there isn't really one theme that <laughs> I particularly enjoy. It's more about being able to get and, and create new sounds and melodies with the cello. So that would be my answer. Anything that involves playing the cello, because I get to kind of play it I think it's why it works is because it's me playing it, so it's not necessarily a a very well-trained classical cellist. So it takes on this sort of weird, different tone, a different edge. It's sort of familiar, but yet it's a bit rough around the edges, which I think High Castle is which is why it works. I think if it was, you know, if I got Steve O'Doady in here to play the cello lines, it would be too perfect. Yeah. And it's not that, you know, these characters on the surface appear to be put together when actually deep down, they're all pretty messed up. (laughs) So that's why I think my cello playing helped in that regard.
0: Well, now I always like hearing about innovative sounds that composers come up with, especially for the shows that they're working on. So did you do anything crazy with your, practical instrumentation as opposed to the digital that contributed to the atmosphere of the series, like, you know, scraping glass on metal or anything crazy like that?
2: Yeah, I mean, the, the, the sort of creepy, eerie undertones of the score have all come from, it's an overused way of saying things, but it's, they're all organic instruments that I've messed with. The struck chimes that appear very prominently in, in episode in the pilot, um, when we first watched the video of the Allies winning the war, I took those and I stretched them and I fed them through feedback and uh, through delay and and put the feedback up and got some really interesting noises. And I sort of use that approach whenever I need to make sound design, which is which is I guess is half of the score because if I had to sum up the the sound of High Castle, it would be. The familiar, which is the traditional orchestral instruments that I use, whether it be clarinet, cello, piano, horn, whatever whatever it might be, the Western orchestral instruments. And then the other half is the stuff that makes it feel weird, which is me messing around with instruments and, you know, getting the audio of it and messing with it so it doesn't sound like that anymore. I mean, for example, Smith, for the first two seasons... A lot of the time when he's on screen and in season three, but a lot of the time he's on screen, you're just hearing this piano pedal feedback, which is I just, you know, recorded the pedal of the piano going up and down, fed that into a delay, put the feedback up to max. And it just like went for five minutes and it just created this really cool thing that just kept evolving over five minutes. And then depending on how intense Smith needs to be, you take the first bit of it and it's not quite as intense as the very ending, which is by that point really screaming away and really nasty. So that, I would say, not not necessarily a different innovative instrument, but, you know, taking instruments and and using them in different ways and and messing with them helps to create the world of High Castle.
0: Yeah, I like that because it kind of fits with the warped view of the world as well, since it's just a little different from our own.
2: Yeah, and you know what, it comes from the whole idea of Edelweiss, really, which I guess subconsciously we worked on that first, and and subconsciously it kind of got in my head as being, in quotations, the Edelweiss method, which is essentially hearing something familiar and making that sound horrible and weird and creepy, you (laughs) know, because that's that's actually a beautiful song that he sings to his children, but, you know, we took it and we messed with it, and it's now super creepy, so... That's kind of what I do with the score. If you think about it, you know, Tagomi or Keto or Giuliano or Frank, all their melodies are very lovely by themselves. But then when you add all the other stuff with it, it then gets super weird and creepy.
0: I like it. Well, thanks so much, Dominic, for talking to us about Man in the High Castle. You're so welcome. Looking forward to when it drops on October 5th.
2: Yeah, me too. I hope you, I hope you guys like it.
0: All right. Some great teasers in that interview. So I'm very happy that Dominic was able to share his vision with us. And I think he made a lot of very logical musical choices that end up bringing a lot of atmosphere to the show. So The Man in the High Castle is definitely one. I can say since I'm already in my reviewing, I'm already up to episode seven. This season is top notch. I mean, season two went a little off the rails. Season three is right back on track. Am I
1: going to get fired if I say that I still haven't seen season two?
0: Not at all. It's it's a heavy show. Yeah. It's not really a bingeable one, even though it's on a streaming service. (laughs) So hopefully those of you who are out there watching Man in the High Castle enjoyed our interview there. And I hope you also enjoyed our discussion topic and show topics as well. But that's going to be it for this edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity we hope you enjoyed our discussion you can keep it going all month long by following us on social media we're on facebook and twitter at sci-fi fidelity and of course we did have discussion on our topic each month on the facebook group
1: and mike it's going to be tough to decide what shows to talk about in november so we'll let everybody know what we end up choosing but in the meantime be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you access it we're on itunes stitcher soundcloud and now spotify
0: Whilst we do take suggestions for future topics, we would welcome them in fact. So let us know what you'd like us to talk about on social media, or you can send an email to scififidelity at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next month.
2: Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go
1: up.